History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 45, Xerxes Porphyrogenitos. Welcome back to the narrative. But before we begin, I want to remind everyone that we're just five episodes away from the episode 50 Q&A episode. To celebrate the 50th episode of the podcast, you can ask me anything about history, the podcast, or even myself, and I'll do my best to answer it in the 50th episode. You can ask your questions on all of the usual forms of communication. Patreon subscribers can reach me there, or you can email me either on the website contact page or historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, I'm open to messages on all forms of social media, so find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Everything else is fair game too. If we're in a server on Discord or you see me on Reddit, send me a message and ask away. Anyway, it's been a while since we focused on the story, and in the meantime, we've covered the role of women in Achaemenid Persia, Darius's sprawling family, and the early history of Zoroastrianism. We left off the narrative just after the Battle of Marathon and the end of the Greco-Persian War. After nearly a decade of fighting, 
first on the Ionian coast of Anatolia and then in Europe. That war came to a somewhat anticlimactic conclusion for the Persian Empire, and its great king, Darius I. The Battle of Marathon is rightfully remembered in ancient Greek history as a massive accomplishment where the full force of Athens beat back a Persian expeditionary force at least twice their strength, becoming one of the few Greek armies up to that point to defeat the Persians in a pitched battle, certainly the first to repel them from their territory for any long amount of time. But for the Persians... Marathon was one loss for an average-sized force at the end of a generally successful war. True, we will see that this relatively minor defeat was enough of an insult to motivate Darius into organizing a genuinely massive invasion plan for the second attempt, but if you agree with me and view the Ionian Revolt and the invasion of Europe as one continuous war, then it was definitely a Persian victory. The revolting territories in Ionia, Aeolus, Caria, and Cyprus were once again tribute-paying members of the Persian Empire. The subjugation of Thrace was complete, and Macedon was now firmly a Persian vassal kingdom. And yet, it was also a victory for Athens. The Persian invaders had been repelled, and a generation of Athenian heroes had proven their mettle. Oddly enough, it was ultimately even a success story for the Ionian Greeks. Even though they had been defeated in a series of battles, their tyrant governors had been removed and the city-states were allowed to govern themselves as democracies, so long as they paid their taxes, thus achieving one of the original goals of their rebellion, despite all the defeats. That was the situation as it stood in 489 BCE when Darius and his advisors started making plans for a renewed invasion of Europe. The planning process afforded a longer respite to both sides, significantly more than the last lull in the action in 491 BCE, when the Persians still sent a widespread diplomatic campaign into the Greek city-states. Instead, both sides would spend this time preparing for round two. We don't really know much about the next three years in the Persian Empire. Presumably, construction continued at Persepolis, and by the 480s, Darius must have been feeling his age, and work would have been underway on his tomb. The end of the war in the West and plans for a large campaign in Europe led to a tax hike across the empire to fund the organization of a new invasion force and the logistics to move thousands of people beyond the empire's borders. There must also have been a sizable rebuilding campaign underway in Ionia to rebuild from the fighting there. Between the building projects and the war taxes, Darius's regime agitated one of the most valuable and volatile satrapies. After 26 years of relative peace, Egypt erupted into a revolt. Herodotus attributes this to both high taxes and what some scholars have called a brain drain in Egypt. Supposedly, at least in the opinion of the Egyptians, an unreasonable number of their craftsmen and scholars had been forced or ordered to travel to Iran, 
Presumably, they were sent east to work on Darius's many building projects in Babylonia and Parsa. But Darius himself was never able to put down the revolt in Egypt, though he may have tried. Herodotus tells us the issue of succession first arose when Darius was planning to lead the invasion of Greece personally, while Ctesias tells us that Darius left Persia just over one month before his death. So it may be that Darius planned to give Egypt his personal attention as well. It may seem odd that a king who was in his mid-60s to early 70s was planning to personally go on campaign, but we should also remember that Cyrus the Great died in combat at the age of 60. It wouldn't be entirely out of the ordinary. Regardless, given that the aged king was planning on setting out into battle, a clear succession plan would have been a necessity. Herodotus says that a Persian king was not permitted to go on campaign without a designated successor, which in general seems like a sound policy. However, he also implies that the planned invasion of Greece was the first time the issue of Darius's successor ever came up, which is just bizarre given that Darius had certainly led armies away from Persia in the past. Given that this succession law is never mentioned again by any other source, we might assume that it was a fabrication or misunderstanding by Herodotus. Herodotus also tells us that it was only now, with Darius planning to go to war at over 60 years old, that his son Xerxes rose to prominence, propelled by the inordinate influence of his mother, Atossa. Of course, if you go back to episodes 40 and 41, where I discussed Darius's wives and sons, you might remember that this probably wasn't the case. Atossa's near-mythical reputation as a political influencer in the royal court probably only arose after her son took the throne, and many scholars now believe that Xerxes was Darius's choice for successor much earlier, possibly by as much as a decade. Either way, Xerxes was the chosen successor by 486, and according to Theseus, Darius fell ill for 30 days after returning from a journey outside Persia. Whether that was simply time spent at one of his other capitals, or the beginning of a campaign against Egypt, we'll probably never know. Thus, in 486 BC, Darius I died. He was about 65 years old, and had been the great king, the king of lands, the king of Persia, the king of Babylon, the king of Sumer and Akkad, the pharaoh Seteture, and the king of kings, Cheshayathia Cheshayathianam, for 36 years. If we follow Theseus's suggestion that the king died in Parsa, then we can probably assume it was in his mostly completed palace at Persepolis. If that was the case, then the king would not have had to travel very far. Unlike Cyrus, who was buried in his own palace complex of Pisargadae, or Cambyses, whose grave is still unknown to us but presumed to be in the same region, the tomb of Darius was constructed in a new location. About five kilometers northwest of Persepolis, a rocky mountain rises out of the Iranian plateau. 
We don't know what the Achaemenids would have called the future site of their royal necropolis, but today it is known as Naqsh-e-Rustam, or the throne of Rustam in English. It takes the name from a much later Sassanid Persian relief carved below the Achaemenid tombs, which was misinterpreted after the Arab conquests as a depiction of the life of Rostam, a later legendary Iranian hero. In the time of Darius, though, those inscriptions would have been absent, as were the three nearly identical tombs that would eventually be hewn into the mountainside. At most, there would have been an enclosure protecting Darius's tomb from unwanted visitors, a couple of mud-brick buildings to house the priests attending to the tomb, and possibly a strange structure called the Kaaba Azardasht, or the Kaaba, or Cube, of Zoroaster, in more familiar terms. Like Nakshe Rustam, the Kaaba Azardasht is a misnomer from the medieval period, possibly derived from a later Sassanid use of the structure. The building itself is a Caymanid, and quite simple. A two-story rectangular building of limestone bricks with 30 steps leading to a doorway. It is highlighted by gray granite around angled window slits and square notches carved into the stonework. What exactly this building was for, or even which Achaemenid king built it, is unknown. It is very similar to a mostly collapsed tower at Pisargadai, known as the Zendan-e-Soliman, the Prison of Solomon, another medieval name. We can tell from the chisel marks on the sides of the blocks that the technology had improved somewhat by the time the Kaaba Azardash was built, so scholars assume that the version at Pisargadai was built earlier, in the Tespid period, while the version at Naqsherostam was built by a later Achaemenid king. What exactly this pair of buildings is for remains a mystery. The Zendan e Suleiman is a candidate for Cambyses' tomb, but if that's the case, then why is there a copy at Naqsherostam? Perhaps a later king copied Cambyses' design. It's probably not Bardia's tomb, because it's doubtful that Darius would want himself entombed near an internal reminder of his illegitimate rise to power. It's also possible that it was some sort of temple or mortuary associated with the royal burials, thus explaining why there would be one near both Cyrus's tomb and the tombs of his successors. Alternatively, it has been suggested that they have something to do with the coronation process of the new king. We know that the coronation took place at Pasargadai, but maybe there was some component near the grave of the previous king as well. What we can be absolutely sure of is Darius's grave. High above the ground, carved into the stone face of the mountain, is a sort of cross. The cruciform tombs of Naqsherustam can be divided into three parts, lower, middle, and upper, with the middle section about half again the width of the other two, featuring a doorway in the center. The lower section is blank, while the upper register of Darius's tomb depicts a relief of Darius, his god, and his subjects. 
A bob-relief depicts a two-tiered platform supported by 30 figures. Each figure has slightly different dress and is labeled by nationality to represent all the different peoples ruled by Darius in his lifetime. Unlike similar monuments from the Neo-Assyrian or Ancient Egyptian kingdoms, this image of the king standing over all his subject peoples is not an image of domination. They are not being crushed beneath Darius and subjugated. Instead, they hold themselves upright and bear arms in the presence of the king, a sign of great trust. The statement is clearly that these subject peoples support the empire, not that they are crushed by it. The sole exception is the representation of the Babylonian, who is unarmed. This gives us a hint that the monument was probably not complete when Darius was entombed there, and Xerxes oversaw the completion of the relief. Xerxes, we will see, had ample reason to insult the Babylonians in royal art, especially during the early portion of his reign. On the left-hand side, three royal bodyguards, or advisors, are depicted standing on top of one another. From top to bottom, it depicts Gobrius, Darius's father-in-law and co-conspirator against Bardia, resuming his role as the royal spear-bearer, very similar to his depiction at Behistun. Then there is Aspathines, or Aspasana, carrying the king's battle axe, a long-handled cigaris, though he is identified as the title bow-bearer. Then finally, an unnamed figure carrying another spear, depicted similarly to the immortals in the palace at Susa. I personally find Aspathenes to be an interesting inclusion here, because we've never heard of him before. Herodotus mentions him only as the father of Prexaspes, one of the Persian admirals in the coming invasion of Greece. We can, however, make an educated guess about Aspathenes, because he is identified as the bow-bearer. Apparently, he replaced one of the original seven conspirators, Antiphrenes, after Darius had Antiphrenes executed for treason, which I discussed back in episode 24, Darius the Great. To the right of this trio, standing in all his glory, surrounded by cuneiform inscriptions in Persian, Akkadian, and Elamite, is Darius. He is dressed in the traditional Elamite-style court robes that Achaemenid kings always depicted themselves in, and wearing the Kidaris, his signature cylindrical royal headdress. Darius is standing on a plinth, facing a fire burning on an altar. He is apparently depicted in the middle of an act of worship, either raising or lowering his hand to his mouth similar to how courtiers are usually depicted in Achaemenid art when facing the king himself. This gesture is obviously a sign of respect, and may be intended to prevent a subordinate spit and breath from polluting the object of their attention. In this case, Darius is covering his mouth in reverence before Ahura Mazda and the Holy Fire. Some scholars have suggested that this might be a very early predecessor to the Padam, the face mask worn by modern Zoroastrian clergy to avoid polluting holy fires. 
Above Darius and his altar float two very interesting and somewhat controversial images. Very prominently, in the center, we see the Faravahar, usually described as the figure of a man or a king seated in a winged disc. That description leaves out the tail feathers and bird's legs that extend below the symbol in early Achaemenid depictions. I've touched on the Faravahar before, back in episode 25, Behistun. I want to go into a little more detail now and correct something I said back then. The exact meaning of the symbol is an issue of contention. Early interpretations invariably stated that it was a depiction of a Hura Mazda. Modern Zoroastrians and some Iranians are fairly iconoclastic and insist that a Hura Mazda is never depicted, and instead proposed that it represented the king's Fravashi, a sort of personal guardian spirit. This is something I mentioned back in episode 25, but this interpretation has been largely discredited, rendering the word Faravahar, which comes from Fravashi, somewhat ironic. Those supporting the iconoclastic interpretation now usually point to the idea of a Kvarena, an otherwise abstract concept of splendor and power projected on Ahura Mazda's appointed king. In all likelihood, the Faravahar could have changed roles between the Achaemenids and the Sassanids when we get more evidence for the Kvarena proposal. That said, I tend to stand by the traditional view that the Achaemenid Faravahar was certainly Ahura Mazda. The symbol itself, a winged disc with a kingly figure in the center, was already established in Mesopotamia. It was always a depiction of a god, particularly gods associated with the sun. The Assyrians depicted Ashur in the same symbol, and the Babylonians likewise depicted Shamash. The Mesopotamians seem to have borrowed the image of the winged disc from Egypt, where it represented the sun god Ra. And when Darius copied the image for his own use, he retained the Mesopotamian idea of a kingly figure in the sun disc, but adopted the wider, more angular wings that were common in Egyptian artwork. Given all of the context for the image of the Faravahar in the world around Achaemenid Persia, a depiction of Ahura Mazda who watched over the world through the sun is the only option that really makes sense to me. So Ahura Mazda, in the form of the Faravahar, floats over Darius and his fire altar as they rest on a platform supported by the peoples of the Persian Empire. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. 
Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Then a very odd and interesting icon floats in the top right corner of Darius's tomb. A disc with a crescent imposed on the bottom half. This image has puzzled archaeologists and historians trying to discern what exactly it is supposed to be. Or rather, what other than the moon. The fact that it represents something about the moon is pretty obvious, as that's almost always what a crescent floating in the sky means. And this exact moon disc was used in Mesopotamia, or at least variations of it were, to represent the god Sin, god of the moon. The disc confuses people, though. Is it supposed to represent the sun alongside the moon? Is it depicting some kind of lunar cycle from crescent to full? Is it just a convenient boundary to hold the crescent moon? And within those debates is the issue of why it was included on Darius's tomb. Everything else about this uppermost section is religious, so we have to assume that the crescent and the disc are religious iconography. But about what? One popular suggestion is that it represents the Iranian moon god Ma. Ma was apparently a popular divinity in the Persepolis tablets, and Herodotus suggests that the moon was guardian of Persian expats living in Lydia. Unfortunately, Ma is a very minor Yazada in the Avestan hymns, so it's difficult to understand what role she played that made the cult so popular during the Achaemenid period. The one role we do know is that, in the Avesta, Ma became the assistant of Vohumana, the embodiment of good thoughts, and she represented spiritual peace. So being associated with Vohumana is something that could make Ma very important. In the context of a tomb, Ma may have been equivalent to carving R.I.P. on a headstone, you know, spiritual peace. There's also a more esoteric interpretation where the disc portion symbolizes the sun 
and it's making some kind of statement in reference to the Zoroastrian idea of night passing into day as a microcosm for the struggle between good and evil. Ultimately, though, the exact meaning of the symbolism on Darius's tomb will remain a point of academic contention. Below these reliefs, we see the widest part of the tomb, a mostly blank facade with four faux columns and a crenellated overhead surrounding a short doorway. The dimensions of this entrance and the proportions of the false columns and ceiling are identical to the entrance of Darius's palace at Persepolis, giving the tomb a sense of a palace for the deceased. Inside is a simple, unadorned antechamber leading to three more doorways. Each door leads into a crypt with deep recesses carved into the stone, evidently a place to set a casket or sarcophagus. We do not know who the other two graves were meant for. Perhaps Darius's parents, who Theseus says died while trying to inspect the tomb in the early stages of construction, or possibly for two favored wives like Artistine, or even favored advisors. Ultimately, we don't know because Achaemenid burial practices are not documented anywhere and do not reflect traditional Zoroastrian practice. It is assumed that the tomb would not have been barren in its heyday. If we follow the description of Cyrus's tomb from the time of Alexander, it was probably richly decorated and filled with grave goods. But at some point in the centuries after the Achaemenids fell, these tombs were looted and emptied. A stone lid was probably placed over the recess containing the royal sarcophagus once it was placed in the tomb. And when it finally covered Darius's body, it must have truly felt like the end of an era. But as with any monarchy, the end of one era signified the beginning of another. We don't know exactly the order of ceremonies, but just before or just after Darius was entombed, his son, Xerxes, was 38 kilometers or 27 miles northeast at Pasargadai for his coronation. Our accounts of Achaemenid coronations only come from much later, but given the details, we can assume that Xerxes underwent the same process. He went to Cyrus the Great's palatial paradise gardens at Pasargadai and put on Cyrus's own royal robes, probably the Elamite-style robes traditionally depicted in Achaemenid art. According to the Roman Plutarch, we know that he had at least a token meal of traditional foods, a cake of figs and turpentine wood, before drinking sour milk, which was probably dug, a yogurt-like drink still popular in Iran today. Finally, he put on a golden tiara and rekindled the holy fires, which were extinguished in the interim between kings. According to Plutarch, this ceremony took place in the sanctuary or altar of a goddess of war and wisdom, usually understood as Anahita. However, this may only have developed under later kings. In Xerxes' time, the worship of Anahita does not seem to have been very popular, so we may guess a similar situation under the auspices of Ahura Mazda or Mithra, who was associated with kings and other contexts. 
After the ceremony, there would have been a lavish feast held in Cyrus's palace. So there we have it. Dressed in a traditional Elamite robe and wearing a golden tiara, with his father entombed in Nakshirustam and the sacred fires burning once again, Xerxes was king. So who exactly was this Xerxes? Xerxes was the first son of Darius, born after he seized the throne in 522, making Xerxes about 35 years old when he became king. I covered as much as we can scrounge up about the first three and a half decades of Xerxes' life as a prince in episode 41, The Greatest, which isn't much. Several modern historians use Xerxes as an opportunity to explore the Achaemenid education system. Personally, I feel like Xerxes is a little too early to be confident in the institutions of the Achaemenid monarchy, at least as reported by later detailed sources like Xenophon. Herodotus, however, provides a more general description of Persian education, which Xerxes probably would have experienced. From age 5 to 20, Persian boys learned, quote, horsemanship, archery, and to tell the truth. Horsemanship and archery are fairly self-explanatory. That's military training and can probably be expanded to other weapons and hunting. Telling the truth should probably be understood as a religious education, the truth being Asha, the cosmic order I discussed in the Zoroaster episodes, called Arta in Old Persian. That can probably be understood to also include other elements of Iranian religious education. From 20 to 25, young Persian noblemen are supposed to have served in the military, probably the 10,000-strong royal corps called the Immortals by the Greeks. It's not actually clear if this applied to the sons of the kings or if they became satraps or other governing officials that prepared them to rule as well as command armies. Xerxes, based on some scattered references from the Persepolis Fortification Archive, may have succeeded his grandfather Histospes as satrap of Parthia, or at least held some kind of administrative role in that province. As I discussed in episode 41, Xerxes was Darius's chosen successor because of when and how he was born. There were three sons all born to Darius's first wife, the unknown daughter of Gabrias, who I suggest could be the mysterious royal woman Erdabama. The eldest of these sons was Artabazanes, and he may have been as much as 12 years older than Xerxes, depending on when Darius first married though slightly younger may be a more realistic guess. Regardless, Artabosnes must have been the heir presumptive for at least some of his life. While Xerxes was still too young to be a realistic successor, Artabosnes would have come into adulthood around the same time that Darius was actively campaigning in India and Europe. But ultimately, Xerxes had something that even years of training and expectation could not confer on Darius's firstborn son. Xerxes was Porphyrogenitos, a Greek word meaning born in the purple. In later centuries, when monarchs and royalty became more common in the Greek-speaking world, Porphyrogenitos was used to describe a royal heir whose legitimacy was conferred by being born 
after their father was king. And that's exactly what Xerxes had going for him. Herodotus describes a lively debate over the issue of which prince would succeed Darius, and places the argument for Xerxes in the mouth of the exiled Spartan king Demaratus. Supposedly, he argued that Darius would be wise to adopt the Spartan model and make the firstborn in the purple sun his heir. As Herodotus says through the character of Demaratus, Artabazanes was born to Darius the subject, but Xerxes was born to Darius the king. Xerxes was actually doubly prophyrogenitos. And I think this is actually the most important detail. Because his mother, Atossa, was daughter of Cyrus the Great, Xerxes was the eldest living heir to Persia's first great king. While Darius's sons through the house of Gabrias would always carry a sense of illegitimacy because of their father's coup, Xerxes and the house of Cyrus were indisputably legitimate. And by leaving the throne to Xerxes, Darius may have been trying to secure the empire in the eyes of some of the nobles. But this was not without dispute. The conflict is not reported by Herodotus, but is referenced by several later sources, including the philosopher Plato. Evidently, Artabazinus disputed Xerxes' claim to be the greatest prince, as confirmed by their father and he started marching down to Persia from his own satrapy to challenge Xerxes for the throne, probably from Bactria. Fortunately for Xerxes, this dispute did not erupt into open war. The newly christened king and his elder brother exchanged gifts and dignitaries and never seemed to have come to blows. It's possible that Xerxes offered to name Artabazinus as his heir, as suggested by Plutarch. This would back up the theory that Artabazinus, or one of his full brothers, is the true identity of Masistes in Herodotus, as I describe in episode 41. On the other hand, we never hear about Artabazinus again. Unlike so many of Xerxes' siblings and cousins, he does not appear in the invasion of Greece. Of course, it's entirely possible that he was busy in the eastern half of the empire, but it does leave you to wonder if Artabazinus made it out of his dispute with Xerxes alive. In the end, Xerxes' status as the greatest after Darius was upheld one way or the other, and he became the undisputed king of kings. And finally, with Darius entombed and the throne secure, Xerxes turned his attention to the rebellious outburst in Egypt. But that is where we will pick up next time. For now, I want to end on two quotes, one from Darius and one from Xerxes. Together, I think they summarize this passing of the torch nicely. The face of Darius's tomb bears two major cuneiform inscriptions, copied in the three languages of the Achaemenid monuments. The first is designated DNA and is somewhat autobiographical, while the second, inscription DNB, is a final religious testament. I'd like to read an excerpt from DNA to close out the life of Darius. If now you shall think, how many are the countries which King Darius held? Look at the sculptures of those who bear my throne. Then shall you know, then shall it become known to you. The spear of a Persian man has gone forth far. 
Then shall it become known to you, a Persian man has delivered battle far indeed from Persia. Darius the king says, This which has been done, all that by the will of Ahura Mazda I did. Ahura Mazda bore me aid until I did the work. May Ahura Mazda protect me from harm and my royal house and this land. This I pray of Ahura Mazda, this may Ahura Mazda give to me. After Darius's passing, Xerxes continued his father's designs for the palace complex at Persepolis, but made some changes. A segment of the treasury was replaced by an expansion of the harem apartments, where Xerxes left several copies of an inscription detailing his own rise to power, designated XPF. I think that is how I would like to ultimately lead into the life of Xerxes. King Xerxes says, Darius had other sons, but thus was Ahura Mazda's desire. My father Darius made me the greatest after himself. When my father Darius went away from the throne, by the grace of Ahura Mazda, I became king on my father's throne. When I became king, I did much that was excellent. What had been built by my father I protected, and I added other buildings. What I built, and what my father built, all that by the grace of Ahura Mazda we built. King Xerxes says, May Ahura Mazda protect me, my kingdom, and that which was done by my father. May Ahura Mazda protect this. And with that, I think we'll call it a day. Next time, I will continue with the early years under Xerxes I, King of Kings, and the rebellions against his rule. Until then, to find more information about the podcast, or to reach out about the Q&A for the 50th episode, you can head to historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you can find some more information, my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and the support page to financially support the podcast. You can also support the podcast by going to Patreon or finding us on Lysium FM and signing up for a Lysium Plus supporter account. That's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. If you can't support the show financially, I completely understand that in these difficult times, but I do encourage you to leave a review for the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, and all sorts of other ones now have great reviewing platforms, and I always love to hear your feedback. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, 
or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.